visit kpfa.org to check out the latest in KPFA fashion and gear. For as little as $25, you can be a fashion trendsetter and become a member of KPFA. Wear the revolution. Visit kpfa.org today. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. And welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, the Director of Arts and Cultural Programming here at KPFA, wanting to thank you for your support during our spring fund drive. If you weren't able to call in to pledge your support, it's never too late. You can go to our website at kpfa.org and pledge your support securely online and know that every single bit helps this institution keep giving you community radio. We play homage to two dear friends of KPFA that have passed on, Toby Cole and Utah Phillips, both who programmed here at KPFA. Stay with us. Toby Cole was an influential agent promoting theater of social significance. Credited with fostering native talents like Sam Shepard, as well as contemporary European masters, and an important scholar through her widely used textbooks on acting, died on May 2nd of complications after a hip fracture in Berkeley. She was 92. From 1957 to 1973, she ran the Actor and Authors Agency in the Sardi Building in Martha's Vineyard and made it a one-woman crusade against the increasing commercialism of Broadway. She also started out by helping resurrect the careers of actors caught in the McCarthy-era blacklist. She represented important character actors but turned increasingly to playwrights like Barbara Garson, whose anti-war Macbird was a cause celeb in the 1960s, and William Alfred, author of the Irish-American drama Hogan's Goat. In obtaining recognition for the translations of theater scholar Eric Bentley and others, she helped in the introduction and revival of the works of Bertolt Brecht in the United States. She also championed avant-garde writers and helped arrange U.S. exposure for important and controversial voices in the British New Wave like Edward Bond, John Arden, and Anne Jellicoe. Novelist Saul Bellow also turned to Miss Cole for her high standards and principled counsel. Along with Bellow, she promoted Nobel laureates in translation, including Pablo Neruda and Luigi Pirandello. Toby Cole was born Marian Sholondenko, the daughter of Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. Blocked from attending college due to her activism, she soon moved to New York and participated in productions of the New Theater League and became a sometime booking agent for the organization. During the war years, she served as a librarian for Manhattan's Russian American Institute. She edited the first of her many anthologies, Acting, a Handbook of the Stanislavski Method, in 1947, and followed her passion for the theater by becoming a play reader, an assistant to the producer of the popular musical Finian's Rainbow, and an associate of the Lucy Kroll Agency, where she worked with James Earl Jones and other emerging actors. 
1949, she began a collaboration with her sister-in-law, Helen Critchenoy, a Smith College professor of theater with Actors on Acting, a seminal textbook still being used on American college campuses. Directors on Directing followed in 1953, and in 1960, Miss Cole edited Playwrights on Playwriting, an important resource also still in print. Increasingly frustrated by the direction of the American theater and the politics of the Nixon years, Toby Cole left the United States in 1973. She settled in Venice, Italy, and threw herself into preservation efforts there. Moving to the Bay Area during her later years, she became a prolific programmer in the drama and literature department of KPFA between 1985 and 1999. She hosted and produced more than 100 original broadcasts that furthered theater awareness and progressive causes on subjects from Steve Biko to Samuel Beckett, proletarian literature to labor history. We listened to a tribute from our own Jennifer Stone, originally broadcast on the morning show yesterday. Stay with us. Toby Cole has died at 91. Toby Cole is survived by her son, John Kretsch, and his wife and child. As I said, Toby was 91 and had been ill for some time, but uh, she had a long run. She was a long-time activist, writer, programmer here at KPFA, um, an incredibly brilliant editor. I remember... Once I was talking to some actors and my friend, the acting teacher, Jean Shelton in San Francisco, she said that Toby Cole's work, Actors on Acting, was the number one El Primo work for actors. Uh, I remember using it in college a hundred years ago. Uh, actually, Toby goes back to um, to the Times, let's see, uh, HUAC. House on American Activities. She was the agent for Zero Mostel, I remember. Anyway, as those of you who knew her remember, she was a passionate partisan. <laughs> yes, comrade Tovarich. She was a uh, absolutist. Socialism was her creed. She um, never varied from that. Uh, she did get into all kinds of arguments on the subject, God bless her. Uh, <laughs> I did not always agree with her, but we were always friends, um, affectionate and good pals. I, I remember, I remember thinking once, uh, that my favorite book, I looked for it last night and finally found it. I haven't looked at it for several years. Uh, my favorite book, was the one about Venice. Toby Cole lived part of the year in Venice, and she was she was a Venetian, literally a Venetian, and she put together the most remarkable book. Uh, I've only been to Venice once briefly, and I tell you, this book is more interesting. Well, of course, I, I didn't have a chance to see enough. She told me that it was foolish to go for just a day or two, and I said, well, I was poor, and I must do what I could. Uh, and then she got sensible and pointed out to me uh, just exactly what I could do in the space of a day or two in Venice. Uh, in any case, the book is called 
Venice A Portable Reader, and it comes from Lawrence Hall. I'm sure you can get it at the library. Uh, I don't even know. The edition that I have is 1979. Right, A Portable Reader, Venice. And what's wonderful about this book is the range, and, of course, her introductions and her uh, explanations. Let's see. Uh, she starts with Henry James' Portrait of Venice. She goes on to um, uh, what she calls a section on the grand design, John Ruskin on the birth of Venice, 421 A.D., then The City Republic by Niccolo Machiavelli, and then Edward Gibbon, you know, The Fall of Rome. She puts in a section called The Sack of Constantinople, 1204 A.D. Then she uses Mary McCarthy's essay, The Spoils of the Sack. Uh, and on and on. Uh, actually, my absolute favorite is a piece by Jan Morris, uh, James Morris he was then. He became Jan Morris. I remember that the scandal of his being um, transsexual was what caught everyone's attention. What caught my attention was his absolutely brilliant, uh, I guess some people would call it travel writing. I think that, uh, what is it, he made me want <laughs> want to go to Trinidad, to all the places that he describes. Uh, Anyway, she goes on. The next section is by Casanova, uh, a native son of Venice. Yes, his escape from prison there. And then she has a section about the spectacle of Venice. Uh, You know, St. Mark's, the painters, the Grand Canal, the streets of stone, Venice preserved. Once again, Mary McCarthy, John Ruskin, Henry James, all the, all the, Great ones, the spectators actually are the most interesting. Mark Twain, Innocence Abroad. <laughs> what Mark Twain thought of Venice is so delightful. Mark Twain, of course, had no illusions. Uh, let's see. Euphemia Gray Ruskin, John Ruskin's wife, Effie in Venice. Hilarious. Uh, old Charlie Dickens, An Italian Dream. Ah, a special interest, George Sand, 1834, April in Venice, Wolfgang von Goethe's letters, on and on and on, uh, the uh, 17th century, oh boy, um, then Venice in Literature is the final section of she uses the works of, oh, you know, Byron Shelley and Keats and uh, Fenimore Cooper, James Fenimore Cooper, Proust, section from Remembrance of Things Past, and uh, on and on all the way down to Ernest Hemingway and Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. Uh, I think, yes, this is this is an esoteric or arcane book for those of you who care about uh, the old world. Some people say that uh, Venice is the world's greatest museum. I kind of think I'd like to go and live there because there are no cars. I'm that simple-minded. Uh, <laughs> anyway, of course, 
uh, all the explanations and introductions tell us that the way you see Venice tells us more about who you are, you know, than about Venice itself. It's all in the eye of the spectator. That's the one that um, uh, Oscar Wilde uh, told us about. There's a poem by Wordsworth here in the beginning. Yes, Venice, the eldest child of liberty, a maiden city bright and free. Okay, and what if she had seen those glories fade, those titles vanish, and that strength decay? Yet shall some tribute of regret be paid when her long life hath reached its final day? Of that which once was great is passed away. Men are we and must grieve. Yes, we must grieve when even the shade of that which once was great is passed away. And that will have to be my epitaph for Toby Cole, who has gone from us now. For those of you who found her to be a very, very special, special voice. This has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There will be a memorial service for Toby Cole on Monday, June 2nd at 5 p.m. at the facility where she lived, Redwood Gardens, located at 2951 Derby Street, adjoining the Clark Kirk campus that's heading uphill on Derby towards the Claremont Hotel. This is UU Tossalup, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and once again you are listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Wolves by Lois McNeese. I do not want to be reflective anymore, envying and despising unreflective things. Finding pathos and dogs and undeveloped handwriting and young girls doing their hair and all the castles of sand flushed by the children's bedtime level with the shore. The tide comes in and goes out again. I do not want to be always stressing either its flux or its permanence. I do not want to be a tragic or philosophic chorus but to keep my eye only on the nearer future. And after that, let the sea flow over us. Come then. All of you, come closer, form a circle, join hands, and make believe that joined hands will keep away the wolves of water who howl along our coast. And be it assumed that no one hears them among the talk and laughter. That's the voice of Utah Phillips as he introduced his show, Loafer's Glory. Utah Phillips, a seminal figure in American folk music who performed extensively and tirelessly for audiences on two continents for 38 years, died Friday of congestive heart failure in Nevada City, where he lived for the last 21 years with his wife, Joanna Robinson. Born Bruce Duncan Phillips on May 15, 1935 in Cleveland, Ohio, he was the son of labor organizers. 
By his 20s, Phillips demonstrated a lifelong concern with the living conditions of working people. He was a proud member of the Industrial Workers of the World, popularly known as the Wobblies. Phillips served as an army private during the Korean War, an experience he would later refer to as the turning point of his life. Deeply affected by the devastation and human misery he had witnessed, upon his return to the United States, he began drifting, riding freight trains around the country. His struggle would be familiar today when the difficulties of returning combat veterans are more widely understood. But in the late 50s, Phillips was left to work them out for himself. Destitute and drinking, Phillips got off a freight train in Salt Lake City and wound up at the Joe Hill House, a homeless shelter operated by a member of the Catholic Worker Movement and associate of Dorothy Day. In the creation of his performing persona and work, Phillips drew from influences as diverse as Borscht Belt comedian Myron Cohen, folk singers Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, and country stars Hank Williams and T. Texas Tyler. A stint as an archivist for the state of Utah in the 1960s taught Phillips the discipline of historical research. Beneath the simplest and most folksy of his songs was a rigorous attention to detail and a strong and carefully crafted narrative structure. In 1968, he ran for a seat in the U.S. Senate on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket. The race was won by a Republican candidate, and Phillips was seen by some Democrats as having split the vote. He subsequently lost his job with the state of Utah, a process he described as blacklisting. Over the span of nearly four decades that followed, Phillips worked in what he referred to as the trade, developing an audience of hundreds of thousands and performing in large and small cities throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. His performing partners included Rosalie Sorrells, Kate Wolfe, John McCutcheon, and Annie DeFranco. He was like an alchemist, said Sorrells. He took the stories of working people and railroad bums, and he built them into work that was influenced by writers like Thomas Wolfe. But then he gave it back. He put it in language so that people whom the songs and stories were about still had them, still owned them. He didn't believe in stealing culture from the people it was about. His extensive writing and recording career included two albums with Annie DeFranco, which earned a Grammy nomination. Phillips' songs were performed and recorded by Emmylou Harris, Waylon Jennings, Joan Baez, Tom Waits, Joe Ellie, and others. He was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Folk Alliance in 1997. Phillips, something of a perfectionist, claimed that he never lost his stage fright before performances. He didn't want to lose it, he said. It kept him improving. Utah Phillips began suffering from the effects of chronic heart disease in 2004, and as his illness kept him off the road at times, he started a nationally syndicated folk music radio show, Loafer's Glory, produced at community radio station KVMR in Nevada City, and started a homeless shelter in his rural home county where down on their luck men and women were sleeping under the manzanita brush at the edge of town. We now turn to a great treat that we found in our archives. The following is an excerpt of a live performance of Utah Phillips at the Freight and Salvage held back in December of 1995, where his personality and conviction for justice shines through his wit and music. Oh, my, my. Yes, I love being here with all my old friends. And with all my, I got my, all my tchotchkes here. Tchotchkes is a, is a Navajo word I learned in New York. <laughs> oh, you speak Navajo, huh? <laughs> I learned it from my 
I now have a whole medicine man, Shloimi Kakablui Vas Begay, who is the last of the Navajo Nephites. And a live bait and sushi stand. Over by two out of three falls, Idaho. Dashing down the aisles with an empty pocketbook. I ain't got no dough, so I'll just have to look. Bells on registers ring, making me uptight. Guess I'll have to go and rob a liquor store tonight. I'll stick em up, stick em up. Christmas should be free. I can't beat the system, but the system can't beat me. <laughs> I've looked at from both sides down. From black and brown, from horse and cow. But when Newt and Rich, I recall. I guess I don't know at all. <laughs> Songs by Fanta could be another Dar Williams. <laughs> and my kids came down from Spokane. Brendan and Morgan Bell, you've heard me ruminate about them. Yeah, they've gotten bigger now. Stuff food in them, they swell up. I got it. <laughs> Quasi-literate. And, and, and then my, my wife and partner, Joanna, who's the one who keeps me pretty much alive. Welcome. Nothing around me but the Rockies and sky If there you find me as years go by Railroad along the Great Divide At the onset here I know most of you have spent time with me before, but uh, those of you who have heard me should probably turn to those who may have not, like, like uh, Paul Nord and so on, calmly reassure them that this is in fact what happens when I sit on a stage. <laughs> not much more. This is about it. You'll notice no sudden or dramatic change in my instrumental or vocal attack, as it were. I know there are some things in mid-20th century industrial America that don't change very fast. I am one of those. This <laughs> is nonetheless an American folk song. You don't hear them much anymore, do you? Don't hear them on your AM radio, huh? Folk singers hardly ever sing them. That's because they're boring. Folk music is boring. Whack, fall, the die, do blow, you win, psycho. Hell, that's boring. But this is a folk music club. I am a folk singer. You're ostensibly the folk, n'est-ce That means we own this song together, right? It's ours. We have thereby incurred certain social obligations which we will faithfully discharge, right? We're going to sing this damn song together, boring or not. Got it? 
I only have to remind you that in a mass marketing economy, a revolutionary song is any song you choose to sing yourself. Welcome to the revolution, comrades. Of course, those of you who don't sing, I will teach you a personally that a Mormon missionary is sent to each of your homes. Railroading on the great divide, nothing around me but the Rockies and the sky. It's there you'll find me as years go by. Railroading on the great divide, huh? Railroading on the great divide. Nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you find me as years go by. Railroading on the great divide. No, you got to be really careful, uh, uh, you know, white man in this culture, uh, of your bigotry. It gets out of control. I have spent a good part of my life confining my bigotry to um, chickens, most Christians, and the French. <laughs> There's a lot of slop in there. You know, There's still a lot of room, room to move in there. Well, it was the damn chickens, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, the Victory Garden, and there was no bashing stand for pet food, and so they gave me these two dumb chickens to peck up the seed in the Victory Garden, and one of them got real sick, so I had to kill the other one and make chicken soup to get the first one better. The one we killed hated it, came back and haunted us. Ever been haunted by a chicken? Kind of a poultry guy. Thank you for the applause. <laughs> Where was I? 19 and 14, I started to roam. Out through Wyoming, no money, no home. And I was drifting along with the tide. I landed out over the Great Divide. Railroading on the Great Divide. Nothing around me but the Rockies and the sky. If there you'll find me as years go by, railroading on the great divide. Well, what else has been going on? Oh, I guess election is closing in on us at a blinding rate of speed. I still, you know, take the anarchist perspective. If God wanted us to vote, he'd have given us candidates. <laughs> The Christians, you know, the Christian coalition mixing in there. I get along with Christians fine. I never turn my back on one, but I, <laughs> I think they got the idea after several thousand years of self-flagellation over real or imagined sins, but most of it probably richly deserved, that the solution to every social problem is more punishment. More punishment, more prisons, bigger prisons, bigger prisons. So I can see how the conservative mind might be drawn to penal enlargement. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that. I've been waiting to say that for 
survived by his sons and daughters, Duncan, Brendan, Morgan, Nicholas, and Ian, and brothers and sisters, David, Ed, Stewart, and Deborah Cohen, and a grandchild, Brendan. The family requests memorial donations to Hospitality House, P.O. Box 3223, Grass Valley, California, 94945. For more information, you can go to www.hospitalityhouseshelter.org. You've been listening to a special edition of Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. If you have any questions about what you just heard, you can call me, Amelia, at 510-848-6767, extension 212, or email me at Amelia, A-M-E-L-I-A, at kpfa.org. Thanks to Erica Bridgman at the controls, and to you for listening.